Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will, too. Y'all, this is a very exciting day for me because today I get to read the winning entry of the LeVar Burton Reads writing contest. Last year, I was approached by Faya Literary Magazine and Tor.com about collaborating on a writing contest. Now, I was really excited because we have sourced many of the great stories for the pod from both of these venues. Uh, The Silver Door Diner, A Kiss with Teeth, the list goes on. So we teamed up and put out a call for submissions last summer. And boy, did y'all answer the call. I wish I had been able to recognize even more stories than we did because there were so many wonderful stories. And if you submitted and your story wasn't chosen, I really want to thank you for sharing it with us. Your Work ranged from hard sci-fi to light speculative fiction featuring creatures and humans. Uh, The work tackled the nuances of blending and competing cultures and civilizations. (sighs) Y'all, it was truly, truly beautiful. And I want to thank our slush team for reading over 700. Yeah, y'all, you heard that right. Over 700. Hundred writing submissions. And I especially want to thank Diana Info and L.D. Lewis for not only helping to bring me the final set of stories to consider, but also for their fantastic job of editing our winning selections. And so, again, congratulations to our honorable mention, James Longine Yu, our third place winner, Viviani Glass. Our second place winner, Grace P. Fong, and the first place winner, Anna Maria Curtis. Y'all, please check out and support our collaborators on this whole thing. Faya Literary Magazine and Tor.com, who are publishing truly fantastic fiction and nonfiction all the time. Now, today, if you check out Tor.com, you'll be able to read all of the winning stories in their entirety. So, when you're done here, scoot on over to Tor.com. Now, let me tell you about today's author and story. Anna Maria Curtis is from the part of Illinois that is not Chicago, and she double majored in English Lit and Economics, so she's always ready to ramble about Jane Austen, Anthony Trollope, and trade policy. Anna Maria is the winner of the 2019 Dell Magazines Award and a graduate of the Alpha Workshop, and her work has appeared in Clark's World and A Dying Planet. Her story, The Last Truth, is about a hired lockpicker who is serving out the final days of her contract to a man who is essentially a crime boss. The twist? In this world, lockpicking requires sacrificing a truth, a memory that you will never get back. And so, if you're ready, let's 
Take a deep breath. And begin. The Last Truth by Anna Maria Curtis Eerie arranges her truths like the tears of a wedding cake. The most complex memories are the bottom layer, used only in the direst situations, and the smallest and most delicate rest on top, waiting for small and uncomplicated locks, the kind anyone can open. There aren't enough of those, in Erie's opinion. She takes shallow breaths in the still air of the hold as she shuffles from one chest to another, throwing up dust every time she moves. The lock on the next chest glows red when she approaches it. It's a standard truth lock, spelled by Mr. Gilson's lockmaster to recognize its true owner. He's a wealthy passenger, unlucky enough to have hired Merrick's whole ship for his travel, and he'll be the last person Erie has to steal from. Open, she says. I require a truth. I am your rightful owner. It never works on the locks she deals with, since it's a lie, but she's supposed to try, to test for weaknesses. This lock remains a stubborn red. I require a truth, it repeats. Eerie reaches for her tiered truths and plucks out one that seems least painful to lose. The ship that brought me from Ikitri to Sild was overcrowded, and my bunkmate elbowed me in her sleep and bruised my jaw one night. It hurt to speak for weeks. I learned to make myself understood without speaking. This is why Merrick picked me to be a lockbreaker. The lock glows a soft, welcoming yellow. The ache in Erie's chest deepens a bit. She wonders what she just gave up. It's a tricky business, opening truth locks. Only truths a lockbreaker has told nobody else can open a lock. As soon as a truth is spoken aloud to the lock, it disappears, unusable, and the memory that sparked it goes too. Lockbreakers, in addition to possessing an organized mind, must have a quiet disposition. Eerie often thinks how much easier this would be if others pitched in, sharing their few easy truths. But the Sildish Empire is fond of its order, and its citizens are as well. None of them would agree to relinquish control of themselves like that. It's hard for most people. And so, Eerie is here alone, as always. The trunks are stacked on top of each other, higher than Eerie's head. 
They're not the same size or shape, and though the dockhands who loaded the ship must have tried to keep them steady, the trunks at the top of the stacks wobble with the steady motion of the ship. Everything is brown, even the air, and her lamp barely emits light. Mr. Gilson, traveling across the ocean for his daughter's wedding, paid for very strong locks. Every trunk requires sizable truths, even those that eerie guesses don't contain anything particularly valuable. Ten days, Eerie tells herself. Ten days. In ten days, they will land on Kagewe Island, and she will report to Marek for the last time and walk off the ship forever. It will be the last of five journeys. And ten days is not a long time. She has opened nearly 2,000 boxes since Merrick bought her from the prison ship and wrote her a contract. Open every box on five ships and he would let her go, far from where she came from, a free woman. Eerie is tired of keeping secrets, of hoarding her past like so many coins, deciding which are worth a lot and which are worth a little. She is tired, yes, and sad. She remembers facts about her life, overarching ideas, but she has given thousands of memories to glowing red locks, and she doesn't have many details to hold on to anymore. In ten days, she will be free, she repeats to herself. However much of her is left. She tells the next lock to open, feeds it the bright flicker of hope she felt when Marek unlocked her chains and escorted her off the prison ship, the way that hope curdled to dread when he outlined his plan for her. She won't mind not being able to remember that every morning. Hello, someone says, cautious. The voice is unfamiliar. Eerie curses loudly. No one is supposed to be here. She lifts her lantern and looks in the direction of the voice. A young woman, tall with long brown hair, stares back from a few paces away. She's dressed all in purple and stands in front of a flat wooden chest. The purple and the fine cut of her dress mark her as a musician. Not a stowaway, then, just another part of the Sildish government's intricate web of control. Eerie starts out polite. Can I help you get back to your cabin? No, thank you. The woman flushes from her neck to her forehead, but she stares eerie down nonetheless. I was just looking for something. Nothing down here to benefit a musician. Eerie hooks a thumb in her belt loop and tries to look friendly. Let me escort you out. Actually, the musician says, I'm wondering if you could help me with something. You're a lockbreaker, right? Eerie shakes her head. I'm just looking for damage down here. The musician crosses her arms. She is much taller 
than eerie, but than most people are. Then why did I see you unlocking that box? Shit. Eerie's heart drops into her stomach. Merrick said no messes, but what's the cleanest way to get the musician out of her hair? Eerie drags a trembling hand across her forehead and tries for a pleasant, comfortable smile. What do you need, exactly? I just want to borrow something. I need you to open the box. Make it quick, then, Eerie says. Musicians are supposed to stay in their cabins. Though Eerie has no sympathy for the Sildish Empire's need to control everyone and everything it touches, she has a healthy fear of musicians. Some rules should be followed. Music, in correct dosages, expands the enjoyment of those who can afford it. But it has to be carefully managed to prevent disaster. The woman leads her to a flat box in another row. This one. Plug your ears, Eerie warns. If you hear this, it won't work. The musician sticks her fingers in her ears dutifully. Eerie opens the lock with something small. The only memory she has of music. Played at a wedding she attended as a child. The music itself is impossible to keep in her mind, but she describes the swirling color of the dance floor, the giddiness of being so young and briefly so happy. Eerie gestures to the musician that she's done. The musician takes the lantern from Eerie's hand and holds it up, rummaging through sheaves of paper. The lantern lights half her face like gold fire. Her brown hair, otherwise dim, gleams. She pulls a few sheets of paper out. Eerie catches a glimpse of delicate, slanted symbols, but they mean nothing to her. Eerie takes her lantern back, accidentally catching the calloused fingers of the musician. Neither of us were here, she says. The musician nods. You can replace these tomorrow if you meet me at the entrance to the passengers' quarters at seven. Eerie is three minutes late to meet with Merrick, and he taps his watch meaningfully when she arrives at his cramped office. Sorry, she says. I was working on a tricky one and didn't want to quit. He smirks. Look at our little lockbreaker, learning to like her work. Here. Eerie hands him her list of chests she's unlocked. Someone will come in to empty them of their most valuable items, replace the goods with rocks and straw, and relock them while she rests. He flips through the pages. Anything interesting? I should know. There was a... Eerie knows she should report the musician to him. If she doesn't and he finds out, well, she's seen what he does to his sailors. But a thought occurs to her. Maybe the musician will 
play for her. She's heard of what music does. Drives people wild with delight. Makes them dance until their shoes fall apart. Careless of their bleeding feet. But she thinks it must be possible to use it for something gentler. Merrick is staring at her. There was a damaged chest, she says instead of finishing her thought. Can't tell if it was our fault or his, but it may be worth making sure he doesn't throw a fuss. She makes a mental note to put a dent in something tomorrow. Right, Merrick says. There are streaks of gray in his hair. He looks bored. They're not supposed to complain until we're long gone, he says. Eerie can read the tension under his words. There's a time limit on this. On their past journeys, their ship mostly carried cargo that would then travel over land for weeks or months before being unpacked. This gave them time before their theft was discovered and left the owners with a multitude of suspects to blame. This is the first passenger journey they've undertaken. The reward is greater, but so is the risk. But the sustainability of Marek's operation isn't Erie's only problem. After they get to Kagewe, she doesn't care what happens to him or his ship. He waves a lazy hand at her. Hold on, he says. I'll see you tomorrow. Now, let's get back to our story. At dinner... Eerie finds herself shoved into the same group of people she always is. They tolerate her silence, and that's fine. She doesn't have anything interesting to say. Stories are currency among the ship's workers, and she has none to spare. She dips her hard biscuit into her pea soup and avoids her benchmate's elbow, as he gestures in the middle of a tale about a woman he met at the ship's last stop. Eerie hasn't been allowed on land since she entered the prison ship. Ten days, she whispers to herself. She stares at her soup and hopes the biscuit will soften quickly. The woman across from her, Carries, has been serving the musicians in their rooms and she's telling the group her discoveries. The start of a new voyage is always good for gossip. The wedding Gilson is throwing his daughter will be the biggest ever held on Kagewe, and easily the most expensive. Twenty-five musicians are being brought in, a full chamber orchestra. It's the largest number the government has ever let out of Sild at once. They are guarded, of course, though Carice says they seem to bear the passengers and crew no ill will. Are they practicing on board? The man next to Erie asks. Carice nods. They've given me plugs for my ears. They're making sure not to endanger any of the other passengers. 
touch of music and you're dancing over the rail, I imagine. Eerie thinks she heard music once, as a child, but doesn't have the memory of it, only aware that it happened through memories of conversations about her aunt's wedding. She liked it, though. She's sure of that. The musician holds a finger to her mouth when they meet. The guards switch in five minutes, she whispers. They'll be distracted then. There are two entrances to the wing where the musicians are held, Yuri finds out. And as the guards chat with those replacing them, they bunch around one entrance, leaving the other free for Yuri and the musician to tiptoe through. The musician has a tiny room to herself, a luxury. The bed is bolted to the floor like any other, a plain thing with a flat cloth mattress. But there is a chair bolted down next to it as well, a padded, self-satisfied piece of furniture that doesn't belong. The walls are covered in a thick black substance, though the wood of the ship beneath it is visible at the corners. The musician follows her gaze. It's soundproofing. We practice all the time. I didn't tell my supervisor you were stealing music, Eerie says. And I didn't tell my handlers anything at all. The musician extends a hand. Anea. Eerie. Anea's fingers are calloused, but her palm is soft. You could have opened the box yourself, you know, Eerie says. They tell you it's impossible, but it's not. You just have to think of something you've never mentioned to anybody. Anea draws her hands away. I know. I used to open locks when I had to. But using any memories of a time after I started learning music... It might lose me the practice time and the skill. Why open locks, then? Why steal music? It's music they're going to give us later. It's a test to see how quickly we can polish our performance. I need extra time to prepare. She sits on her bed, moving her wide skirts. Eerie sits on the chair that must, she realizes, be meant for practicing. Why do you need extra time? The musician spreads her arms helplessly. I'm not good enough. They test us all the time, and I only pass if I cheat. I'd be doomed if I couldn't practice ahead of time. Would they throw you out if you failed? Anea nods. And... They'd keep my violin. I don't know how long I'd last without it, she shivers. Not long. It's like locks. There's a give and take, and the violin mostly takes. Without it, I don't know if I'd be myself. Eerie considers what she's heard of lockmakers, the way they end their lives surrounded in rooms of locks, unwilling or unable to leave, rotting away like the rusty metal around them. Oh, she says. 
So, uh, do you mind if I practice a little with you here? Anea asks. I'm not quite done memorizing. She looks a little uncertain. I can do it silently, if you prefer. Oh, no, says Yuri. I'd love to hear you play. Free music is a rarity. It shouldn't be dangerous since it's just my voice and not my violin, Anea says. But a slow flush rolls up her neck. Still, it might be a bit strange. I understand, Eerie says. Anea unrolls the first few sheets of music, clears her throat, and begins to sing. Her voice is thin and clear, true to the notes but without flourish. Eerie slides off the chair and onto the floor and looks up at the ceiling, at the musician, and listens. When Anea sings, her fingers dance along the air with her notes, and she tilts her head just so. Though Eerie has her sea legs, she feels the sway of the ship through her shoulder blades and hips while she lies on Anea's floor. It reminds her of the first days on the prison ship, when she yearned for solid land and the steady grip of her knife more than freedom. She tells herself she will be back on land soon enough. The melody that Anea sings is festive, upbeat, but it makes Eerie more melancholy than ever. The memories don't hurt anymore. Not really. It's their absence that hurts. When she tries to remember what she ate in prison, when she tries to tell herself a story from her youth and finds halfway through, she cannot recollect the names of the childhood heroes who captured her imagination. There will be something left after she finishes the remaining boxes, but not much. How will she start a life if she has nothing to base it on? She closes her eyes, and for the briefest fraction of a second, she is back in Ikitri, a small child, at her aunt's wedding. Someone is playing music, and the adults are smiling, removing uncomfortable shoes, taking each other by the arm, dancing, dancing, dancing until they are wild with glee. She takes a handful of her dress, red cloth dotted with small white and pink flowers, and decides she's not too tired. She can dance too. Eerie opens her eyes and sits up. Anea stops singing. What's wrong? <sighs> a memory, Eerie gasps. She reaches for it again. The music and the dancing fade away like a dream after waking. But the feel of the soft cotton in her sweaty grip and the sight of the tiny white and pink flowers remain. Your song gave me part of a memory back. The place in her chest that aches, aches, aches when she talks to the locks glows warm for an instant. 
She didn't know that was possible. Anea frowns at her. You must want your memories back very much. Yuri doesn't have friends, isn't sure she knows how to have them. The last time she trusted someone, it landed her in prison. I've been lock-breaking for months. She lies back down on the floor and tries to find its comforting movement again. But it's gone. How much have you lost? The musician asks quietly. Too much. What can you tell me about yourself? Anea's voice is gentle, almost too gentle. Yuri aches hearing it. When she started on this ship four months ago, with indifferent cargo in the hold and the kind of hope that comes from getting out of prison, she tried lying to make friends or meet lovers in the mess hall. I'm a lost princess from Kantarang. My father made shoes out of the finest goat leather. We don't have cows where I'm from. I'm the bastard daughter of a diplomat who fell in love with a servant. Yes, that's why my skin is this color. Yuri has to portion out her big truths, so she goes with precious detail. Where I grew up in Ikitri, she says, there are only hills and no mountains, and the hills bloom once a year in a thousand different colors, a special variety of flower for every possible hue. What did you do with the flowers? Anea asks, and Yuri cannot remember. She curses herself for being foolish when she started this job, for not knowing what to preserve or how. I don't know, she says, staring up at the ceiling, beginning to feel the hardness of the floor. I'll have to go back someday. I don't know. If I had my instrument, Anea says, maybe I could help you remember everything. Oh, Yuri breathes. She's always heard music's magic is in the instruments, which must explain what Anea said earlier. But won't it be dangerous? Won't it make me wild? Music knows who you are, Anea says. It gives you what you want. She shrugs. Most people want to dance, to forget themselves for a moment. It's when they want something darker that bad things happen. But you don't want to dance or have fun or die. You want to remember. You want to be someone who remembers. Yuri rolls onto her stomach and looks up at the musician. Is that why you still play? Because you can see what people really want? Anea's mouth twists. It's like I said earlier. If I'm separated from my violin, I'll be ungrounded, like a tree ripped from its roots. She looks eerie in the eye. I'll be as good as dead. When she finds Anea wandering the hold again, two days later, 
looking a little like a lady ghost searching for a lost lover. Yeri wonders if they have the seeds of the same idea winding through their heads. She can't get the thought of Anea being separated from her violin out of her mind, and she's losing too much every day. She's not sure there will be much of a person left by the time Merrick lets her off the ship. There's nobody here but us, Airy says in greeting, and the boxes. Anea whispers anyway, I was just thinking I could really help you, you know, with the memories. If I ever had a moment free with my violin, but they keep such a close watch on me. She closes her eyes. And even with knowing the music ahead of time, I'm falling behind. They're going to test us again after the wedding. And this time, I really think I'll fail. She is so tall, she seems to sway with the ship. And Eerie can hear her breathing, shallow and panicked. She puts a hand on the musician's arm. I have an idea, she says. I'm listening. Let's steal your violin and run away once we reach Kagewe. My contract ends there, so I'll be free to go, and I can get your violin while you sneak away too. I'll be empty of everything by then, but with the violin, you can play my memories back. We can both be people away from here. If we get caught, we're as good as dead. If we don't try, we won't have anything left to make life worth it. The locks have everything of me, Eerie says. Your violin has everything of you. We won't have any money. I'm already opening boxes filled with valuables. I'll steal something small, enough to get us passage somewhere, far away from here. A smile unfurls across Anea's face, a bit wobbly. She's trying to be brave, but she's nervous. Eerie is too. It's a terrifying idea. Okay, Anea says. Okay, let's try. If everything goes to plan, Eerie will step on land for the first time in years. Anea will give her her memories back. From Kagewe, they can go anywhere at all. The day before they're due at Kagewe, Eerie's hopes shatter against a small black box in the corner with the biggest and most complicated lock she's ever seen. Open, she tells it softly. I require a truth! Eerie jumps. The voice is harsh and multi-toned, the loudest she's ever heard. She turns and finds the ladder, climbs out of the hold, and marches right to Marrick's office. He raises an eyebrow when she arrives, panting slightly and red with rage at his door. I'm not supposed to see you for another six hours, he says. 
Eerie's rage-fueled courage doesn't hold up. Sorry, she says. It's just... She pauses, hoping he'll cut her off, anticipate her complaint. But he doesn't. There's a box I can't open. His expression doesn't change. A small one? Have you tried it? I didn't have to. Opening that thing will destroy me, Merrick. Merrick fingers the papers in front of him deliberately. That box, he says, contains the bulk of Gilson's wealth on this ship. It has jewelry, papers, money. You're not a stupid girl, Erie. You know as well as I do that he'll be looking for me once the thefts are discovered. I need that money to get out of here, to go somewhere else and start fresh. That's awful, Erie says reflexively. Maybe so. But you signed a contract when I rescued you from that prison ship. Every box will be opened. Something inside Erie's chest curdles. He's never meant for her to have hope. Erie goes back to the hold. She unlocks all the remaining boxes except the small one. Then... She stares at the large lock and takes stock of what she has left. Her time in prison has shriveled to nothing in her brain. The details of everything before that have been plucked away. The man she was meant to marry. The ship she left Ikitrion. The handsome thief who betrayed her and sent her to prison. Her family and their compound in the hills herself the quietest and youngest of the bunch. They are concepts, the skeleton of a personal history, but she has no memories with which to flesh them out. She's a shell, an instrument nearly past its usefulness. They arrive at Kagewe tomorrow. Eerie goes back to the kitchen and finds Caris, carrying trays of food just exiting. Can I take these in for you? Eerie asks. Caris shrugs and hands over the trays. Less work for me. She reaches for the plugs in her ears and gives them to Eerie too. Just in case. The guards let her pass without so much as a blink. Anea takes the food from her absently before she recognizes Eerie. She smiles first, a bright instant thing, but then her expression quickly turns to confusion. What are you doing here? Eerie puts a finger to her lips and closes the door behind her. There's a problem. Eerie tells her about the black box with the giant lock in the hold about how she won't be allowed off if it's not opened. I can't open it and the chest with the instruments, she says wearily. I just can't. Anea, sitting completely straight on her bed, stares at her with blazing eyes. But her voice is soft, as clear and gentle as it was in song. We agreed, Eerie, she says. We have to try. 
This box will erase me, Hanea. Once I open it, I won't be a person anymore. Anea leans forward, grips Eerie's hands. You will be, she says. I will play you back to life. Eerie knows, looking at her, that Anea is her only hope of reclaiming her past. That giving up everything is her only hope of getting anything back. Okay, she says. Okay. Eerie wakes early the next morning. That is, she hasn't slept at all. She sneaks down to the hold well before breakfast. That's the plan. The crew will start unloading as soon as it's light out, but the passengers, Gilson and his group of musicians among them, won't leave until after breakfast. Eerie has to get everything done before then. Before she goes, she rips out a page of a cabin mate's book and writes down a list of the three things she needs to do. She hopes she won't need it. When she faces the black box, Eerie can feel her heartbeat in her throat and palms. Open, she commands. I... Require a truth. Eerie sits in the space between boxes and talks. She tells the lock about the house she grew up in, the way the vines grew up the walls and over the windows, the taste of the rolled corn and mangoes they ate for breakfast. When she pauses to take a breath, she looks at the color of the lock It is as red as ever, so she takes a breath and keeps going. She has only large things to say now. Her chest aches and aches and aches. Her mind races, searching for the details she's lost, knowing they were just there. Her heart begs her lips to stop moving. When I was 17... She says carefully. I was arranged to be married. I wasn't fond of the idea. My sister helped me get the money to buy passage on a ship and run away. She goes on telling the lock of how she was befriended and betrayed by a thief who tricked her into thinking he was her choice, who made her believe that what she did for him, she did for good, and vanished when she got caught. Here, she pauses. The lock is orange. Of her time in prison, there is little left to tell. But tell it, she does. And then she describes her first steps on this ship, the Itation. The stories she heard in the mess hall, her check-ins with Marek. How she hates his lined face and low chuckle. She continues right up to the moment before she met Anea, and the lock glows a warm, yellowish-orange. So close. Her brain is screaming at her, begging her to stop, to save what little she has left. But she remembers Anea, that the music can bring her memory back. Eerie's mind 
is a gaping blank, a vast white emptiness punctuated by the occasional contextless image. She tells the lock about meeting Anea. She closes her eyes as she says it. And we will walk out, and the sun will be shining, and I will stumble when we hit dry land, but we will be free. She opens her eyes. The lock is butter yellow. It clicks open when she puts her hand to it. Eerie has something she's supposed to do. It's for someone else, someone she's made a deal with. Does she trust this person? She doesn't know. She doesn't know anything. She doesn't know what matters. She turns to look for a way out, and a piece of paper stuffed in her shirt pocket brushes against her arm. Number one, unlock the musician's chest, it says, in her own handwriting. Where is the chest? The musicians live above by the passengers. Erie knows that much. She goes down the corridor, up the ladder. In the hallway, people in purple are assembling packing things up, murmuring about food. One of them is tall and has brown hair, and she looks at Erie with worry when she passes. Erie opens what must be the wrong door. The tall musician pushes her gently at another, and her fingers linger on Erie's shoulder. This one, she says urgently. Hurry, we're leaving soon. I'll distract them so they don't notice you. Eerie nods and watches her leave. Perhaps they knew each other once. There is a large metal chest in this room. It must be the one she's meant to unlock. Open, she says. I require a truth. Eerie stands in front of it and closes her eyes. There is no structure left to her memories. There are simply images floating through. She describes them. A grassy hill in the fall. Hunger and impatience. A long, dark, low-riding ship that clinks as it moves. A red dress with white and pink flowers bunched in her hand, lace at the hem, a long, pale neck of a violinist, moving her fingers with no instrument to hold, a clear melody sung aloud, the rocking of a ship beneath her shoulders, with every word, the emptiness in her chest, in her mind, grows. The lock turns toward orange, but remains decidedly red. The truth is, she says helplessly, I have no truth left to give. The lock clicks open. She stumbles forward and looks inside. There are cases and cases of instruments, and she doesn't recognize any of them. She looks at the crinkled paper in her hand, 
Number two, steal the light-colored violin. The handwriting looks like her own. She thinks she knows what a violin is. The room is small, but it feels large. The echoing emptiness in her head seems to spread to everything around her. She has something to do. She opens the instrument cases, looking for light-colored wood. One small instrument is a pale tan color, and it gleams even in the dim light. The lockbreaker closes the case, which she grabs. She has the instrument. She turns back to the paper, her only tether, messages from her past self. Number three, get back to Anaya's cabin. Anaya, that must be a name. But who is that? The lockbreaker stands in the room surrounded by instruments. The walls seem to recede. Everything is emptiness. Perhaps she will just sit here. She folds her legs and sits on the floor. The floor rolls pleasantly beneath her, and beneath the dust, some of the wood smells like pine. She has a task. She must think who Anea is. She remembers a pale hand, dark hair lit by a lantern, a smile rolling across a face. The lockbreaker opens the case and runs a gentle hand over the violin. It is smooth, well cared for. She can just sit here with it for a moment. The door to the cabin opens. A tall woman in purple looks down at her, light from the lantern in her hand illuminating her pale face and brown hair. Her mouth creases into worry when she sees Eerie, and though Eerie does not recognize her, she wishes to smooth her face back out into something lovely. The woman bends down to take the violin from Eerie's hands and presses a soft kiss to Eerie's temple as she straightens up. We don't have much time, she says, opening the case making sure the soundproof door is sealed. But what we have, I will give you. She puts the violin to her chin and begins to play. What a thing um, it has been, this contest. I mean, a few months ago, we just announced it. And people started writing and then submitting and submitting and submitting. And then the reading started. And and I got to tell you, I am thrilled with the result of, of this contest. The stories, y'all, have been really, really wonderful 
to read. And it was such a hard decision to arrive at um, at this, the first place story, and and the other winners um, in our contest. Uh, the, your talent um, is impressive, and I thank you for sharing yourselves with me and with the rest of us. So a bit about the story. Um, I find it absolutely fascinating, this idea that in order to unlock the locks, right, you have to tell a truth. And that any truth you tell then creates a void within you, right? That there's a cost for the truth that you use as the key. And of course, we don't live in in a world like that necessarily. I mean, you know, there are some who are dedicated to telling the truth, and then there are others who are really committed to the lie. And, you know, we see this struggle playing out in front of us every day. But there is a truth, what I believe to be true anyway, um, in, in that idea, because I do believe that the lie steals something from us, right? That that there is a cost to the lie. There's a value for bringing forth truth. And there is a commensurate price to be paid for the lie. The problem is it's really difficult to discern sometimes who's telling the truth and who's lying. I mean, yeah, sometimes it's hard Right? But I think if we take the time to get to know ourselves, I mean really put in the work to know who we are, what makes us tick, to discover and discern why it is we're here, to be then courageous enough to deliver that gift to the world in the discovery of who we are, therein lies our truth meter. And that instrument is ourselves, right? And when we do, when we reach a point in our lives where we really can trust the core of ourselves, to exercise that discernment that only comes with wisdom and process, when we are able to do that with any sort of regularity, there really is Nothing to fear from a lie. Because as they say, and I genuinely believe this at the very core of my being, it is the truth that does indeed set us free. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all. Our researcher, Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. And we have editing support from Tamika Weatherspoon and Harry Huggins, the new, new kids on the block. Editing and sound design by Casey Holford, the new, new, new kid on the block. My great and undying thanks to Anna Maria Curtis for allowing us to read her story today. And, of course, thanks to all of our slushers, Tor.com, Faya, Literary Magazine, L.D. Lewis, Diana Foe, Emily Goldman, Irene Gallo, 
Caleb Russell, Stitcher's marketing and legal teams, Josephine Martirana, and you, if you submitted your work. If you have kids in your life, here's a tip. Because I often hear from parents who are looking for ways to keep their kids entertained and, you know, nurture a love of story without adding more screen time. Hmm? So, I have partnered with a company called Tony's. Check out Tony's.com for more info on the Tony Box. And there's also a LeVar Tony that features me reading my book, The Rhino Who Swallowed the Storm. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend, why don't you? Pick your favorite story and send it to them. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. LeVarBurton.com is my corner of the interwebs. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. 